Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. And uh, please like and review us on your favorite podcast app. We know how many of you there are out there. And not all of you have, uh, have liked us or recommended us on uh, your podcast app, so please do so. Um, follow us on Twitter at, at clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. And Chris, we have a very special guest this week. Yes, we do. I'm very thrilled to be joined. Uh, I'm, both of us are thrilled to be joined uh, by uh, someone that... Thrilled. That, that I wish I could uh, tell you more about, but I don't know that much about him, uh, though we have actually met in person. He's one of those interesting internet friends uh, that uh, circumstances were such that we were able to meet and actually uh, two of us non-Catholics were able to attend a mass together at a Catholic cathedral in uh, Washington, D.C. last summer. Um, but our, our, our guest is Ross Knutson. Is it, did I say that right? Is it Knutson? You did, yes. You, you okay. the, the K it is, is not silent. Okay. okay. Ross Knudsen, uh, who is who is an academic, and, a, and I'm thrilled to be joined, and uh, my hope is for him to give us a better introduction of himself than I could possibly give. Although, like, what I do know about him is that he's a, he's a very good academic. He's, yeah, um, I find him very funny, and uh, I know that he is a, um, uh, that he's a loving father of three children. Well, thanks. It's, uh, it's really fun to be here. Thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. Um, I am from Idaho. Uh, I teach at Boise Bible College. My primary job there is on the registrar, which basically means I make the, the academic computer systems run. But I also uh, teach church history. And church history is really, I mean, it's the thing I love to do. And the registrar stuff is just the price of getting to do what, what you love hmm. to do. Yeah, uh, would you tell us a little bit about um, the denominational tradition that Boise Bible College um, is is a part sure. of? Um, we have some terminological trouble because we call ourselves simply the Christian Church or the Church of Christ. Uh, we're also known as the Restoration Movement. It's a uniquely born in America evangelical tradition. Um, and one of the things that I like to point out to my students is it's an interesting time uh, in the history of the church because the circumstances of, of Christianity in America, uh, for the first time in centuries, there is really no strong church-state tie, and in fact, serious barriers to having a strong church-state tie. And so some of the old world denominations struggled in that environment, uh, but some... Uh, some of the people that came over, uh, such as uh, the Methodists, who, of course, at the time, were part of the Anglican tradition, 
um, and separated only because of the circumstances in America. They found it much easier to operate in America because they could just be more nimble without... Um, no parish boundaries. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the Baptist Church, which struggled in England and was even persecuted in England. Uh, Rightly so. Much of their history. Wait, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, being, but being a church that never had uh, that strong church-state tie and never depended on it, they found the American environment something that they could really thrive in. Um, and then uh, the, the Restoration Movement, the Christian churches, the Churches of Christ, um, found that some of the denominational structures and rules were an impediment to uh, evangelism on the frontier and church life on the frontier. There's a real strong uh, uh, pushback against creeds because of the way creeds were being used at the time, uh, not so much to affirm uh, doctrinal truths uh, or, or statements of belief, but really being used to exclude people. And so there was a strong reaction against that, which I think... This is something I tell my, a lot of my students, and it's probably going to get me fired someday, but <laughs> most reactions are overreactions, and I think that a reaction was warranted, but that, you know, I, I think it also went too far sometimes to the point that in the rejection of, of some, uh, especially the most ancient creeds, such as the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed by some members of the movement, uh, simply because they were creeds, they also rejected some of the doctrines in those creeds. <laughs> so they wind up mm. being uh, mm. heretics. And that's a problem. It's something that, that, uh, that this movement does need to own. And it's something I try to be very transparent and honest about. Yeah. And, and creeds are, it's interesting. They are um, very broad statements. They are not narrow doctrinal statements. They're, they're, they kind of, um, you know, the, the Nicene Creed is something that, that all Christians should be able to affirm. Um, uh, would you say a little bit about um, the use of creeds to exclude people? Um, this is something I'm, I'm not, because this stuff bores me, frankly. <laughs> but um, they, a lot of the reaction was against the Presbyterian Church. Many of the early members of the Restoration Movement came out of Presbyterianism. And uh, in the way that the Westminster Conf Confession of Faith was used, um, to basically, if, if you didn't affirm this certain thing, and if there was a question about, okay, is this really a proper uh, distillation of what scripture is teaching? Is it really fair to exclude somebody from fellowship, to exclude somebody from the Lord's Supper uh, on the basis of this, and what we believe is an interpretation of scripture that may not be accurate? Sure, sure. So, yeah, yeah a, a, a confession is a much more narrow Right. Um, thing than a creed, where a creed is 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 um, very broad. It doesn't, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of like you're you're inside or you're outside um, yeah. of that. And or, and Presbyterianism is, at its most litigious is good at creating circular firing squads. So, yeah, I can picture yeah. how and that might have happened. For and for me, I I really don't. One of the things that I regret about my movement is that we have a long history of pointing fingers at other people and saying you're wrong. And if you've ever, you know, run across the, the, the stereotypical Church of Christer, uh, they, they want to argue about everything, especially about baptism. But they want to argue about, about everything. That's, that's the, uh, the stereotype that is not entirely unjustified. Um, but, you know, we're talking about basically frontiersmen uh, mm -hmm. in, in Kentucky and Ohio and Western Pennsylvania in the late 1800s. They're not going to make a strong distinction between what's a creed and what's a, a confession. Yeah. And so all together. Right. And so what I hear you saying is, is um, people who might be uncomfortable with maybe the Westminster standards, one particular part of a, a, a 
lengthy confession, which is a very, very um, detailed um, statement of faith of the Westminster Confession. Um, uh, they, they, they would be prone disagreeing with part of that with throwing out the baby with the bathwater saying, well, yes. we're, we're not going to be a sort of creedal people. Like we're, we're, yeah. we're not going to. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the statement that you often hear from people from my movement is uh, no creed, but Christ, uh, mm -hmm. no book, but the Bible, mm -hmm. uh, which, which sounds good in theory in practice. It's, it's really hard to pull off. And what you've, you, what you wind up with is a lot of people who have creeds that they don't acknowledge as creeds. And right. Yeah. That they don't acknowledge as confessions. I mean, no creed, but Christ is itself. A very a creed, yeah. Creed. Yeah. <laughs> That's a creed. yeah. Whenever you find somebody rejecting a creed or rejecting a tradition, what you ever what you find is that they've got a creed and they've got a tradition and they just yeah. don't recognize it as such. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's very interesting that that um, you just described kind of where you find yourself, um, and, and um, in in spite of kind of all the maybe rejection of tradition or creeds or this, you have a particular interest in the church fathers. Would you would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Sure. It's something that I encountered probably about seven years ago as I was uh, going back to grad school to, to do some additional study and started working more in uh, the early church. And in, in the Restoration Movement and the Christian churches and churches of Christ, uh, there's a strong emphasis on the first century church, the New Testament church. Mm. Um, and, and that's where you get, you know, focus on scripture and let's throw away the accretion of, of 19 centuries of, of doctrinal development because it's probably an error. Uh, let's just get back to it, to the, to the first century church. What I've come to understand, especially as I study the church fathers, is that that may not be the best way to approach this. First of all, uh, again, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, you know, yes, there has been some unfortunate accretion in 19 centuries of doctrinal development, but it's not all bad and some of it's necessary and useful and helpful. And so we, we should take it seriously rather than just blithely throwing it all out. But here's the other thing. Uh, I've, I've come to say that the second century church deserves some very, very careful mm. consideration from us because it was, it was the second century church that had to figure out how to do church without living apostles, without even really living memory of apostles. Uh, they have essentially the tools that, that, that we have now. Um, so uh, the second and the third and the fourth century church, when you look at all the division in Christianity over the years, it seems to me that we ought to be able to agree on the early church, mm -hmm. uh, certainly, certainly through the period of the great councils, uh, mm -hmm. where you start to see the, the, the biggest divisions really begin to take place. Uh, and, and we may even touch on some of that today uh, uh, briefly, but um, where, where I find that I can have cross-denominational fellowship, especially people outside of my own faith tradition, which is American Evangelical Free Church, uh, I can have fellowship with, with Anglicans. I can have fellowship with Catholics. I can have fellowship with Orthodox because we agree on, on the, the rule of faith that was handed down to us, that was, that was practiced and celebrated uh, in the early church as they tried to work out, okay, what is the rule of faith mm -hmm. uh, and how, how do we live it and, and uh, how, do we, how do we do church, to use an evangelical phrase? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned the second century. We have what's great is we have documents from the second yes. century. It's incredible. Um, and the, the the ones, of course, we've mentioned before. Um, uh, Ignatius of Antioch. We have his letters. Uh, we mm -hmm. have uh, we have Have we mentioned uh, the Apostolic Tradition, Kirk, or or the Didache? I, I don't. I don't know if we've mentioned the Didache or not. Yeah. 
But, but mean, some, you're... some really, really uh, good and comprehensive, like we have a decent picture of what the second century church yeah. looked like. Yes. Yeah. And, and this is where, uh, as an evangelical, I have to be humbled by what I receive there because, you know, I come from a tradition that rejects the idea of bishops, even though we basically had preachers and we treat them like bishops. We just you know, refuse to use that title. Uh, you know, bishops show up very, very early and they're right there in the letters of Ignatius. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have to grapple with that. I have to wrestle with that. I have to be honest about the fact that very early in the history of the church, here are things that may not be something that have been emphasized and even rejected by my, by my church, my faith tradition, that maybe we have overreacted. And, that, yeah. and that's, that's something that I think a lot of evangelicals, there, there's, an, there, there's a lot of interest, especially among academic evangelicals. And I find my students uh, are, are very, some of not, I mean, students are students for students, but many of my students are very fascinated by what they find there. Um, there. There's more of an acceptance to look at the things that the evangelical, the American evangelical church has largely rejected or even forgotten existed, and now we're rediscovering it, and it's filling gaps in our theology, it's filling gaps in our practice, uh, and it's answering questions that uh, we either didn't know how to answer or that we didn't even know how to ask. Mm. So John Henry Newman has this oft-quoted and sometimes misunderstood um, statement, to learn history is to cease to be Protestant. <laughs> and, and that that doesn't mean that... Certainly happened in his case. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it, Yes. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to become Roman Catholic, but certainly um, you're brought into the Catholic small C um, yes. uh, sense that we are part of an ancient and apostolic body that transcends yes. time and space that yes. is larger than American traditions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and certainly uh, encountering the second century church, um, you encounter that. Um, Christopher, yeah. you and I have talked about this. To have a low view of church history is to have a low view of the Holy Spirit, mm. that yeah. he would keep, sustain, nurture, and grow that mm -hmm. which he came to uh, instantiate. So, yeah. so Roths, this is, uh, this is all really, uh, really great to hear, and I'm nodding along like a bobblehead along with you here. So I have, I have one more question before we get to Kirk and the, and the surgery update and, and the uh -huh. fun he had with fun with narcotics. It should be the title of that section. Oh my um, gosh. Uh, so, so my question for Ross, uh, we had a listener question that I, t that I tackled or I attempted to tackle um, that I'm sure you get all the time uh, as, as a church historian. Uh, but the question was like, uh, essentially, um, why does church history matter to us? Like what, you know, I hear you, it was basically, I hear you mentioning, you know, the first and second and third century uh, church quite a bit or, or thinkers from that era. Why, like, why does that matter? Why should we concern ourselves? I know we've kind of answered that a little bit, but if you could just kind of um, tackle that question head on. If I could answer that on two levels, one negative, one positive. From an evangelical perspective, we have uh, erred grievously in assuming that the American church somehow represents the pinnacle or the, the complete restoration of what God intended the church to be. Mm -hmm. uh, what we fail to recognize is how much of what we do is at least as much a reflection of American democratic culture as it is of the historic faith. Uh, for, for your listeners who are familiar with the way that church history is often viewed by evangelicalism, there's a reluctance to engage it for fear that you're going to you know, be Catholic or something like that. <laughs> right, um, yeah. 
I, I grew so up with that unspoken premise. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, they're, they're basically the attitude is, is that the, uh, you know, Jesus and apostles and then apostasy for centuries and centuries and centuries. And then Martin Luther showed up and fixed everything. So <laughs> as, as, as far as you need to know church history, you don't really need to go back before 1517 because anything you find past that is going to be, uh, uh, you know, garbage, which is really an unfortunate way to look at all this. Um, from a positive standpoint, um, the study of the history of the church puts us in communion with the saints. Uh, we see how big the church is. We see how active the Holy Spirit has been. We see and are in uh, fellowship with Christians outside of our culture, outside of our continent, and outside of our century. Um, and again, this is something that Protestants are reluctant to really get into because then it, it looks like, oh, so you know, now we're going to be kissing icons or we're going to be asking the saints to inter uh, do intercessory prayer for us. And you know, that's a big ask for a Protestant. And no, I'm not there. Um, but uh, I have been taught and I have been befriended and I have been mentored by historic Christians. And mm. I love them and I appreciate them for what they've done for me even though we are really reaching uh, well, uh, way across the cultures and the continents and the centuries to have that kind of relationship. Um, so, you know, for, for an evangelical, consider, consider the history of the church, not just your denomination, not just your faith group, uh, not just uh, a shared theological perspective, such as, you know, Protestant, look beyond that because um, God has been active outside of your own little corner of the church. And we dare not view the church as something too small. Hmm. Well hmm. said. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope that um, the, the next time we have you on, uh, if we don't drive you too crazy uh, this episode, <laughs> uh, I would love to, to hear your particular interest in, in John Cassian. Mm -hmm. um, I know that that's a particular early uh, church father that, that, um, that you uh, have really uh, learned a lot from. But yeah. Kirk, uh, we're, we're going to shift gears uh, from very serious to, uh, to, um, to, to the mundane. Uh, yeah, how let's are you, grind Kirk? that gearbox, man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, Christopher. Interesting week, man. So uh, I shared with you last week that I had my surgery uh, unexpectedly postponed, and I was—I didn't fully disclose why I had it unexpectedly postponed um, for for a week. I was—I was to this 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 past Tuesday. We're recording here on a Thursday, so two days ago, um, I had hernia surgery. Um, I had it on my right side um, a year ago, 15 months ago. I had it on my left side. Um, this is a, a, a Haberman male weakness. It is our kryptonite. Um, we are we are we are strong and capable and athletic in many regards, and yet, um, man, in the uh, in the matter of hernias, we are we are weak, and uh, this is includes our father and our uncle and our grandfather, and so it came for me. It knocked on my door when I was 39, and then again when I was 40. Um, but but I had to have uh, the coronavirus test um, because I was a little too diligent in my pre-surgery questionnaire. Um, and uh, the nurse was just uh, kind of checking boxes, not listening to me. And her ears perked up when she was going through the COVID symptoms. She's like, and have you lost your sense, any sense of smell or taste? And I, I was taking these questions seriously. And I said, well, um, actually, uh, on, on June 12th, I woke up and I had a real stuffy nose. And um, I was really spooked because uh, I, I couldn't, couldn't 
smell anything. Um, uh, but, 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 it, but I recovered that fairly rapidly. So other than that, nothing. Um, and I was rewarded with my very careful and zealous response with um, a doctor calling me later that night saying, uh, so I heard you've just begun to lose your uh, sense of smell. And so that's why I, I had to have my surgery postponed. So I had that, I, I shared, shared with you listener, uh, the excitement of my coronavirus test, which felt like having my brain probed by aliens. So that was Kirk, fantastic. But Kirk, I wish our listeners could see just how ginger you look. You look like, like you're treating your body like it's glass. Like it's like you're afraid to break yourself. I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a weenie. I, this is the second time in 15 months. You're but, two days out from surgery. Yeah. A hernia surgery. It's weird. Like it, they, they, um, so it's arthroscopic surgery. They, they, they take three incisions in your mid abdomen. Um, and they run this mesh down through this microscopic tube, um, down to where they're going to unfurl the mesh in your body. And so I have, I have, uh, I have Kevlar in my nether region. So that is my, uh, my, uh, x-men power now you're basically a superhero I, yeah i am i am bulletproof down below as long as is, they they shoot you in the abdomen that's that's right that's right okay yeah you're fine yeah so so anyhow um coming out of my wife last last year got a huge kick out of me coming out of surgery evidently when i came out of surgery um i kept complaining about how windy it is and she and the nurse were laughing and laughing <laughs> evidently i was referring to the sound of like the air conditioner um, so this time, because of COVID, um, my wife couldn't be with me. So it was just me and the nurse. And um, so evidently, um, I started telling the nurse, when I started coming to, the nurse asked me, um, um, noticed that I was stirring and like, asked me if, I, hey, hey um, how, how are you feeling? Are you okay? And I said, uh, evidently, I said, yeah, I'm okay. I just have a question. Why, as I was um, <laughs> passing out, why did Dr. Berger say, oops? And she just started <laughs> laughing and laughing. Uh, and then, and then the, uh, the other thing that I said is, um, I, I asked her what time it was. And she said, oh, it's, about, it's 9.30. And that struck me as early. Uh, it didn't seem like, it seemed like more time should have elapsed. You know, you have you know, no sense of time when you're under general anesthesia. And so I said, I guess that makes sense. Because Dr. Berger, I heard him say, let's wrap it up, boys. I got to make my tea time. So she just laughed and laughed. she thought that was great. Like thing, this is this is Kirk's subconscious that all doctors are in a hurry. Uh, they're I mean, I was rolling they... out all the stereotypes, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing, Christopher, I sent you this video. I was, I guess, I was really hopped up when, um, as after my wife picked me up, and we were going by the drugstore to pick up my uh, my hydrocodone. Uh, so so your son Isaac. Um, had his infusion on Tuesday, and he saw the picture of me uh, with my with my arm, like with the, the gauze on my arm, right? And what did he say? He said we're infusion buddies. What did he call us? Yeah, or IV buddies. Yeah. IV buddies. That's right. And so I wanted to share with him my IV story, which is the um, all the nurses I had were great except uh, <laughs> the first nurse, and her name you cannot make this up. Her name was Bernadette Borkovich. Bernadette Borkovich, that is, and she, man, she was a Borkovich. She, uh, she said, uh, where would you, where would you like me to put the IV? And I said, well, I'm left-handed. Could we do it my right, right arm? And I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weenie with needles. And so she went to put the IV first in my hand, um, and then she started to mutter to herself, 
And I said, oh, this isn't good. I said, is everything okay? Sign. She's like, well, I thought I had the vein there and then it went away. And so she said, well, we'll try the elbow. So she tried the elbow and then she started muttering to herself and she gave up on my right arm. Like she pricked me twice. And then she had to move to the other side. So in my head, I'm like calling her Bernadette the Butcher. I'm like, I'm gonna have to tell everybody about Bernadette the Butcher. But then I'm afraid that, um, I'm worried that when I was under, I was talking <laughs> about Bernadette the Butcher, but I didn't know how to ask the nurse. Like, did I say anything about other nurses? So I don't, I don't, I don't know yet if I was slandering poor Bernadette the Butcher. Bernadette Borkovich sounds like something you say when you want to cuss and are trying not to. <laughs> Bernadette Borkovich. Is, right. that, is that Church of Christ cuss, cussing? Uh, what is that comedian, uh, Tim Hawkins, I think, that has a whole routine on, on things that Christians say when they're trying not to cuss? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have, we have our own workarounds, don't we? Yep. Yeah. The, the, the worst one is cheese and rice. That's a good one. That's just a Minnesota thing, isn't it? Oh, is it? Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, and sprinkles. Right. Ross, so, you, uh, you've had so, us. Go before ahead. we get to Ross, um, I, I just want to say I'm a little disappointed. It sounds like Kirk went off the narcotics today. So um, we are not going to get loopy Kirk on the podcast. Yeah. Well, I was looking at my hydrocodone this morning and it, and it said, um, please do not take, like, don't take just to take it, just to finish the prescription. Like, if you're not feeling sufficient pain, don't take it. And I was like, ah, okay, okay. So, dear listener, um, either you're going to get lucid, Kirk, because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm off of, like, narcotics, or you'll just get boring, Kirk, because I'm, well, off of narcotics. So, yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you. I think Ross has a, uh, has a story for us. Yeah, general anesthesia is the best. I've only been under it once. Best sleep I've ever had. But ah. I had throat surgery about 20 years ago, and, you know, when they're – uh, cutting things out of your throat, they want you to not talk for a couple of days afterwards. So oh, I forgot about that coming out of anesthesia because it was such a sudden wake up that it's like, ah! and you know, there's the nurse telling me to, you know, hush. So they hand me a, a pad and a note of paper, uh, or a, a notepad and a pen so that I can write notes. Oh Here's my the gosh. Problem. I'm emerging from anesthesia and I am blind as a bat without my contacts in. So I cannot see what I'm writing and I can't think what I'm writing. Oh. And I'm just on this emotional roller coaster where I'm so happy to be alive and then so emotional about the weirdest stuff. And so oh. my wife was there and, you know, one second I'm just asking her questions and the next second I'm like, thank you for being here. You didn't have to. I love you. You know, and I'm writing all this except that I can't see. And so I'm writing letters on top of each other and I'm you know, <laughs> totally, completely dyslexic. My wife still has these. Oh. She just treasures them because they're, they're hilarious. So, uh, but this ladies and gentlemen is why I don't drink. It's not just because I'm an evangelical. It's because I don't like feeling like that. <laughs> oh, Ross, I was hoping that you would say the first thing you wrote is his name is John. <laughs> Oh, good, Kirk. Some, so, some um, theology nerd humor there. Yeah, yeah. So I, I only have one memory of coming out of anesthesia when I had my wisdom teeth out at the age of 21. Uh, and I remember asking, uh, I don't know if it was earnestly, but seriously asking uh, if I could keep the teeth that they've removed. And they're like, oh, no, those are, those are biohazard. Uh, you know, they, they 
ground them up and threw them away. And, and, and I, I expressed my disappointment because I told them that I wanted to make a necklace out of them. <laughs> so anyway, oh my yeah. Gosh. My, uh, our dad oh. was, was telling us a story about uh, him oh. coming out of anesthesia one time where um, apparently he was told that he was um, wheeled down uh, the hospital hallway and he was like waving to everybody as if he were in a parade. Um, good stuff. Uh, gentlemen, shall we move on to the gospel reading? Uh, just one moment. Ross, okay. I, I, w- I wanted to laugh really hard. I can't laugh because I just had abdominal surgery. <laughs> yes. So my version of laughing is knocking. So if you hear a knocking. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, Ross, it looked like your hilarious. computer had fallen off the desk there. <laughs> I, was, I was knocking. You're having an earthquake where you are. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yes, please so don't rip funny. your guts open. So funny. Yes, gentlemen, let's move on to the gospel. Uh, this week's gospel reading comes from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. It is interesting what Jesus is doing here um, in chapter 15 of the book of Matthew uh, and just what he's doing in general, contrasting faith and doubt. So last week we, uh, we saw Peter sink, mm. Peter, you know, and, and, and him criticized by Jesus for, having, for lacking faith. Um, and here we have a Canaanite woman. Um, uh, so this is not, so the rock, on which uh, the church is built, lacks faith and, and his faith is criticized. And yet we have a Canaanite woman who is commended for having faith. And this is kind of similar. If you think back to Matthew chapter eight, uh, how we have the story of uh, the Roman centurion yes. and how uh, this Roman soldier uh, comes to Jesus and he says, I have a servant uh, who is who's suffering terribly. Would you please heal this person? And uh, for whatever reason, Jesus says, Yes, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And, and the Roman centurion says, he looks at him and he says, listen, I know that I am not worthy for you to enter 
my my home. So, but I too am a man of of authority. When I say come, people come. When I say go, people go. Uh, so I understand the authority that you have. Just say the word, and it will be done. And Jesus uh, heals um, the servant, and and Jesus commends the faith of this Roman soldier. So I don't know who would be more hated. It's interesting how uh, Matthew uses the term a Canaanite mm-hmm. woman, where Mark says Syrophoenician, but uh, Mark, uh, Matthew certainly uses the word Canaanite uh, because it's evocative of of like um, remember the Canaanites and how uh, how we hated them. Um, same thing with these Roman soldiers who were an occupying army, and yet uh, Jesus commends the faith of these people. And yet, um, um, Peter, uh, his, his faith is criticized. And then uh, at the beginning of chapter 15, we see Jesus talk, uh, um, kind of clash with the scribes and the Pharisees, um, where the, the scribes and the Pharisees come to him and they say, you know, why are you, Jesus, how come you and your disciples don't follow the traditions of the elders? What's up with that? And, it, you know, they're, they're trying to back him into a corner. Um, and Jesus points out their hypocrisy. And uh, they're trying to nail him on ritual purity. Uh, their specific uh, problem is why don't you and your disciples wash your hands when they eat or, uh, basically, or basically before they eat, but the, it's translated when they eat. And Jesus uh, points it at them and points out their own hypocrisy uh, and how they've got it all wrong, that, that they may be ritually clean and like the letter of the law, they're, they're trying to fulfill every jot and tittle. Um, and yet uh, they're very hypocritical in the way that they are not honoring their fathers and their mothers. Uh, and, and that's very specific criticism that it's not worth getting into right now. Um, but but basically they have it wrong. Is that is that Jesus says it is what is inside a person that defiles a person. It is the heart um, that that is broken. It, it's like we are um, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. What is broken is inside of us. And you are doing all these external things that you think justify yourself. And Jesus kind of points to where the impurity lies. Um, and, and so not only points to um, kind of people outside of the people of Israel, but also people outside of the official like religion. Um, and, and, and he finds examples of faith outside of that. And he's doing something very uh, specific there. Um, and so this teaching of, of, of the heart being sinful is very integral um, to understand what comes next. And it's a very Matthew concept as well in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You have heard it said, do mm-hmm. not murder. But I say to you, mm-hmm. if you even think of it, right? So it's an extension of that teaching, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so uh, the beginning of, of of this past particular passage in verse 21, we see Jesus going north away from Jewish uh, uh, country. Um, he goes into um, pagan territory um, and uh, we see a Canaanite woman come to him and she must know who he is. Um, is and we see that in her address to him uh, that she says, uh, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Um, wow. Like what a confession of, of faith right there. And, uh, uh, while the Roman soldier knows his place, he says, I'm not worthy. Back in, in Matthew 8, he says, I'm not worthy. Um, she's, she's persistent. Um, uh, she, Jesus, uh, the disciples are like, get her out of here. And, and Jesus acknowledges, he's like, my mission um, is to uh, the lost sheep of, the, of, of, of Israel. Uh, it's, it's not to these uh, pagans, to these Canaanites. Like that, that, that is to come. And, um, and th- there's one commentator who talks about how that maybe that's a question that, that the Greek manuscripts don't have punctuation. Um, and he's kind of thinking like, 
um, like, does, does this interfere with my mission? Um, uh, that's, that's possible. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, what, what seems pretty universal is that there's a bad interpretation of this, of this text, um, uh, where, where Jesus, uh, says something, his response is really blunt where he says, um, it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dog, throw it to the dogs. Um, the, the 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 Greek word used here is 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 a diminutive, so it's it's like more like pups or puppies, um, and and some say well Jesus had a glint in his eye or he was like joking with her. That that can easily be dismissed actually uh, because um, the Aramaic language that he, that he was speaking here at this point um, to this these particular people um, doesn't have it have a diminutive, and so it's it's unlikely that he was saying pups. But he also wasn't saying uh, you know we have this idea of gentile dogs of filthy. Uh, he is referring to probably a, perhaps a pet, um, but he is saying very clearly like this isn't for for you. Um, so I hope I hope I'm I'm showing a little bit of nuance there. And her response is amazing, um, uh, where she says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Uh, and I hope the Kirk, um, I, I know that he probably wants to talk about the prayer of humble access, so I'll leave that to him. But um, in our liturgy, before we come forward um, for Holy Communion, uh, we acknowledge that we, we are not worthy. Um, to receive uh, this wonderful blessing of of um, of uh, of Christ, um, we do not do it of our own merit. Uh, we are not worthy so much as to gather the crumbs on the table. Um, I won't say too much about that. I think Kirk has good thoughts on. He's going to have good thoughts on that. Um, that was literally but... the only commentary I had to <laughs> offer. So, well, I... don't steal my only bit of thunder, sir. Okay, <laughs> um, but uh, it, it is interesting. Um, you know, each of us here are Gentiles and, and this blessing was always, um, when God came to Abraham, he was like that you, you will be a blessing to all nations. Um, and it's interesting to see what comes next. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 and we talked about, um, the, the Eucharistic, um, uh, prefiguring, uh, that this was, uh, of, of, uh, Jesus, uh, as we talked about in John chapter six, um, you know, your father's ate manna um, in the desert. Um, and Jesus is like, I am the bread of life. I am this new manna for you um, to, to feed you. And it's interesting what, what comes uh, in the next chapter is the feeding of the 4,000. And that when he feeds the 4,000, these are, these are not Jews. Um, and so interesting. So he, he had fed the 5,000 showing the benefits uh, this prefiguring of, of, of Holy communion and, and his sacrifice for God's people, the chosen people. But what we see come, so what we see is, is, is this miracle, miraculous healing of a Canaanite woman's daughter, this outside of the promise. Um, and then we see uh, in the next chapter, suddenly this Eucharistic blessing for people outside of, of the promise. And so uh, this is prefiguring of, of the mission to the Gentiles. Um, and and the spreading of the good news to the whole world. Mm, good stuff, Christopher. Ross, you have many thoughts on this. Well, not none original, um, but as we talked about earlier, I'm fascinated uh, more and more by the early church, and I want to know what the early church fathers had to say. Um, so, in my study for this passage. Uh, 
listeners can't see this, but I'm holding up hmm. uh, a commentary called the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture, uh, which is uh, put out by IVP Press, uh, edited by Thomas Oden, uh, who died not terribly long ago. Uh, but he came to recognize that there was much wisdom in the early church that was not readily accessible uh, to a lot of people. So what this commentary does is, uh, in commentary form, it offers uh, passages from a wide variety of, of early church fathers. And for those of you who are uh, preaching uh, and preparing sermons or lessons, I would strongly encourage you to have this, this resource in your library. It's, it's definitely one to add. Uh, it's basically, as I, I, as I teach my students how to use it, uh, the church fathers with training wheels. Ah, that's uh, makes funny. It, it makes it much, much it. more accessible uh, to somebody who might look at, say, the, uh, the Antonicene Father series and be completely freaked out and not even know where to begin. So uh, everything I bring to you here is, is uh, almost everything I bring to you here is basically the thoughts of early church fathers that have been collected in this commentary. So... Uh, Basically, uh, three big thoughts that I had uh, revolve around Gentiles, dogs, and humility. Um, John Chrysostom, who was a uh, fourth-century bishop of Constantinople uh, and a giant figure in the early church uh, as both a preacher and a theologian, uh, he asks the question, why did Jesus go to this region at all? Because as Chris noted, he, he's not in Israel. Uh, he's not going to the people. He's not in the land. He is, he's going to the Gentiles here. This is very unusual in the ministry of Jesus. So Chrysostom asks, why does he go to these, to, the, uh, to these parts of the region at all? When he released them from the observance of food laws, and what Chrysostom is talking about here is the preceding section in Matthew 15, uh, where, as, as Chris was uh, alluding to earlier, he's talking about it's not uh, what you put into your body that makes you unclean. It's, it's, it's what comes out. Um, so as Jesus released them from the observance of food laws, then he finally opened a door to the Gentiles as he proceeded on the road. This anticipates the similar act of Peter, who first received a command to put an end to this law and then was sent to Cornelius. And of course, he's referencing there Peter's vision in the book of Acts, where he sees the sheep being lowered from heaven with clean and unclean animals on it. And he gets kind of freaked out when Jesus tells him to eat. And Peter just can't imagine eating an unclean animal. And Jesus reminds him not to call unclean that which, which mm -hmm. the Lord has declared to be clean. So here Jesus, uh, in, in Chrysostom's analysis of this passage, is anticipating the mission to the Gentiles. He's inaugurating it. Uh, he's, mm -hmm. he's giving it his blessing, even though, as, as the passage points out, he does have a primary mission that he's trying to achieve. Um, Hilary of Portier, uh, uh, Hillary was a uh, bishop in what's now France, uh, in, uh, if I remember correctly, the fourth century. Uh, he wrote, this woman who professed Christ as both Lord and son of David did not need any, need any healing. Rather, she was begging for help for her daughter, that is, the Gentile people, in the grip, grips of unclean spirits. And he's not the only church father to make this connection. Uh, this kind of analogy is very, very common uh, in the early church interpretation of scripture uh, to see a type. It's not that this event did not happen. It did. This woman did come to Jesus. Uh, her, uh, her daughter did have a demon. She was seeking relief for her daughter. Uh, but what Hillary is pointing out is this anticipates the mission to the Gentiles who themselves are oppressed and in need of healing and, and being released. So uh, more than one of the early church fathers looked to this 
a Syrophoenician or Canaanite woman, depending on whether you're reading Luke or Matthew, and Mark, refer to Mark her, or, or Matthew. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, as the as the mother of the Gentiles. So uh, there's discussion of dogs earlier, and uh, uh, Chris uh, Hillary of Poitier would disagree with you on the interpretation <laughs> of of uh, whether Jesus was referring to dogs or little dogs. And I'm not an expert. My my Greek is uh, rusty, and my Aramaic is non-existent. <laughs> What's really fun is when you've studied both Greek and Hebrew and you wind up mixing them together after a while and it's kind of a Klingon. That's funny. <laughs> but um, anyway, both uh, Hillary and then the Lutheran uh, commentator Lenski uh, both uh, mention this uh, reference, not just to dogs, but to little dogs, uh, refer to the diminutive. Uh, and if that well, yes, yes, no, 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 I, I, I don't disagree there. Okay. Okay. I, I, I misunderstood you. I apologize. Um, that, that's where I made the distinguishing between um, like a Gentile dog, like a filthy thing, oh, and yeah. a household yeah. pup, a pup. Like okay. a yeah. 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 So the idea here is not, the analogy here is not that uh, Jesus is uh, calling her a wild dog out in the street, which if you've, if you've been in that right. part of the world, that's just right. ubiquitous. Right. There's dogs everywhere and they're filthy and they're disgusting and they're, they're, they're wild and they're rabid and they're, they're impossible to deal with. That's not what Jesus is calling her. This whole passage does not fit into our modern worldview very clearly. Right. <laughs> it definitely does require some unpacking, but but he's referring more to a a little dog, a family pet, mm -hmm. uh, and a family that the house dog is welcome in the house. So while this, you know, he calls her a dog. There's no getting around yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there there's an edge to it that that there there appears to be an edge to it in the English translation that may that, that's really not justified. He's not calling her a filthy animal, but he is diminishing her in terms of status compared to... Yeah, like you're not welcome at the table. Yeah. <laughs> this is not for um, you. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is hard, but it's not quite hard the way that, that we might mm -hmm. think it is. Uh, right. Because there is a distinction to be made between your children and the family dog. Um, you know, I, I, I love my dog, but my kids definitely come first. <laughs> if it's right. save the kids or save the dog, there's, there's really no question. Right. Um, if you who are evil feed your children. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, um, so, and, and that kind of leads to the third point about humility, which if, if, uh, any study of scripture does not lead you to humility, then you're not doing this right. Um, Chrysostom again says, see her humility as well as her faith. Behold this woman's wisdom. She does not venture so much as to say a word against anyone else. She was not stung to see others praised, mm -hmm. nor was she indignant to be reproached. Behold her constancy. When he answered, it is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, she said, yes, Lord. Mm -hmm. He called them children, but she called them masters. He used the name of a dog, but she described the actions of a dog. She's not arguing with him, in other words, wow. Chris is the missing. Yeah. Uh, but she, she is leaning into what he is saying. Uh, do you see this woman's humility? Compare her humility with the proud language of the Jews. We are Abraham's seed and we're never born into bondage to any man. He's referencing John chapter 8 uh, there. Is that the passage uh, where Jesus says, I could make sons of Abraham out of these stones? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but not so this woman. Rather, she calls herself a dog and them masters, so for this reason she became a child. That's great. That's so yeah. good. 
And then one final passage um, from Augustine. Uh, the woman manifested this humility saying, yes, Lord, I am a dog. I desire crumbs. Jesus found favor also with the centurion who had this humility. And after he asked the Lord to cure his servant, the Lord said, I will come and cure him. And he responded, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. And Chris referenced that earlier. He did not receive the Lord under his roof. He received him in his heart. The more humble a person is, the more receptive and full he becomes. Mm. Good stuff for us. Yeah. So gentlemen, I have uh, a question and then an observation. Um, first question, have you encountered with this passage and the corresponding passage in Mark um, a certain uh, liberal Protestant uh, interpretation that this is evidence that Jesus was um, kind of had um, racial bias as well, and it's evidence that racial bias exists everywhere. Actually, no, I have not encountered that. Okay, all right. I, so I've that's only that my vile, vile corner of the Twitterverse. <laughs> nothing, uh, nothing would surprise me, uh, but that doesn't sound like so much okay. liberal Protestantism as <laughs> just uh, somebody who just hates Christianity and is looking right, Yeah. Yeah, but, no, this but, is... But you, but you are redundant, anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, okay. I, kid, I kid, I kid, I kid. Yeah, no, no, that, this, this is, this is uh, something that I've encountered here and there. And it may be more people shadow boxing with a caricature of liberal Protestantism. It may have it ha happened a couple of times and has been blown out of proportion. So, all right, so that's, that's just my question. I'm so glad that you've never encountered it. May you never encounter it, right? Jesus is not a sinner. Uh, he right. does not have racist views. All right, uh, here's my observation. Um, Christopher, you, you, you alluded to this and I'll reference it fully. Um, uh, in our liturgy as Anglicans and in traditional Methodist prayer books and kind of uh, those other uh, traditions that have kind of stemmed off the, um, the Anglican um, branch, uh, we, we pray um, after, uh, just before receiving Holy Communion, and we pray a, a, a prayer that Thomas Cramner, Thomas Cramner uh, interpreted a lot of the old Sarum rite into English, uh, shaving off the more thornier sort of medieval Roman Catholic edges, um, reforming it uh, properly. Um, but this he wrote out of whole cloth. Um, and this, um, this is pure Thomas Cramner. Um, and this is lovely. And I'll, I'll stop talking about it and I'll just, I'll just read this. Um, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. Do you hear that? The straight reference to the, uh, to the Canaanite woman. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may ever dwell, evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. And that we, we pray every Sunday, and it, every so often I, I open my eyes, and I, I look over at my children, and I watch them, sometimes not praying it, because they're kids, like poking each other, but sometimes praying it, and it's, it's very moving. Um, and it, it, this, this prayer, um, I mean, every Sunday, right? 52 weeks a year, it, I haven't memorized forward and backward. And it, it's, a, it's a reliable groove in my soul. 
Um, and it's just, it's word, words that leap to my lips. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Um, and I think that's the heart of this, is it highlights our Lord's mercy in that we are not worthy of his body and his blood. Um, that is entirely the point of the cross, right? That God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Um, and when we receive him in that posture, um, his gift and his grace is all the more marvelous. Mm. And that's, that was all I had to say about that. Well, okay. So the, the lectionary readings for this Sunday. Oh, um, you're going to bring that up Romans. Cause Romans dovetails so, so hard with e this. Exactly. Oh, well, yeah. and, but, but, he, but even the opening one from Isaiah <laughs> talking about, yeah. um, uh, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, um, blah, 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 blah. Those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house mm. of prayer. Um, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then Romans, like it's, it's amazing how these work together. Oh, such synergy. Yeah. Boom. I, synergy. I, cut, I cut you off. I'm sorry. You you were, you were building. No, 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 no. No, and I, and I, no, I wasn't. <laughs> you always think that like, but, but really I was, I was trying to set you up since you are preaching this Sunday um, on Romans. Do, do you have any comments on that as far as, as just, um, especially yeah. in light of you mentioned, you mentioned, um, uh, the presumption of of uh, of of some of the Jews uh, to be like, well, we you know we are we are you know the uh, we follow Moses, you know, and Jesus is like, dude, like I can make sons of Moses out of the rocks, like right, you right. That's so great, yeah. Well, well, Saint Paul um, pivots in Romans chapter nine, ten, and then really in eleven, um, really takes great careful pains um, to try to make sense of God's unfolding revelation and plan of salvation and the expansion to the Gentiles. Um, and uh, I'm not a Paul scholar, so I don't, I don't know um, kind of where, where in his missionary journeys um, he was at this point, but, but, but it, he always tried to go to the synagogues first mm -hmm. and would, would go to the places of worship, the Jewish places of worship first, and whether he was received there or whether he was rejected there um, would then kind of pivot to um, to Gentile spaces, um, to use all oh, that horrible uh, 2020 phrase spaces. But any, I'm sorry about that. So uh, uh, this In is- In the marketplaces. Is, right, 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 yes. So um, just as we see um, Jesus rightly um, acknowledging that God's election of Israel um, through Abraham and his promises to Abraham, and we'll get to that when we talk about Mary and the Magnificat in just a moment, uh, we see uh, St. Paul trying to make sense of as well and grieving over um, what he sees as a growing schism in Judaism that is the rejection of this new unfolding revelation of Yahweh in the word incarnate Christ Jesus um, and, and the expansion then into, into the Gentiles. And, and so even though um, it appears as if now this is a Gentile moment, um, that's kind of what St. Paul seems to be grappling with, um, yet we do not... Um, we, we do not disparage the root, the branch that is grafted on, and this is what I'll be, what I'll be preaching on in chapter 11, the, um, the metaphor of the olive tree. Um, you have the branch that is grafted on to the, the original root. And in fact, St. Paul says, um, he says, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive branch, do not consider yourself to be superior 
to those other branches. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Um, so Boy, that does not sound like bootstrap Christianity, Kirk. It does we not. This last week. It does not. So we are grafted into um, Israel. Um, we do not kind of lord it over them. And um, so you, you see that as well. The Canaanite woman has that proper humility. Um, she, understood, she, she recognizes that the promises were to the sons of Abraham. And uh, as you said, Ross, is uh, marvels in gratitude mm. that Jesus would extend um, mercy to her as well. Mm. Is that a good place to, to end this gospel segment? Christopher, any final thoughts? Let's move on to theology. All right. So for our theology segment today, we have a major principal feast day in the church calendar, um, Christopher, that you and I never celebrate, as we discussed last week, these great October, or not October, these great August feast days when all the whole church goes on vacation, um, and we just kind of, no one's going to church, and church is hot anyway, and we're kind of all, kind of, we're, we're cutting out things out of church anyway, cutting out the Gloria, um, and so uh, August 15th, is the feast of the Virgin Mary, Mother of our Lord. And um, I've never celebrated it in our parish. And it's not because we're like a slovenly low church parish. Um, we just never celebrate it. Um, and Christopher, I imagine it's probably safe to say, uh, likewise for you. And so I figured we should talk about this. Um, in all but the most Anglo-Catholic circles, um, we Protestants really, I think frankly, don't have much to say about Mary. Um, and it's, it's probably because what I like to call romophobia colors a lot of our Mar Marian piety. Um, we're, we're afraid of kind of accidentally falling into uh, Roman error. And so in doing so, we fall off the other side of the horse. And um, I think this is a mistake. And uh, we want to talk about how we might begin to amending this mistake. Uh, I want to suggest that we should, uh, we should marvel at Mary and we should celebrate her because she is, and I'm about to use this word um, uh, unabashedly, and so kind of the, the more lower church among our listeners might be shocked by what I'm saying, so uh, I'll explain it. Um, she is the mother of our Lord. Uh, the Greek word is theotokos, um, uh, the, the bearer of God, the God-bearer, and um, that is affirmed by councils, uh, the Council of Ephesus in 431 that, that, that all Protestants affirm. Um, her humble yes, undoes Eve's rebellion. Um, so there, there are a couple of doctrines that are, that, that are really crucial to our faith that she is front and center on. Um, the first is the Annunciation. Uh, we celebrate that on March 25th. Um, but the second is the Incarnation. We celebrate that on December 25th. Uh, so Christians, we love the Incarnation, right? And Mary is front and center there, certainly. Um, uh, Christopher, for you and I as Anglicans, we pray or sing the Magnificat every evening. That is a, just a really kind of uh, 
just carved into our souls. My soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my savior for he had, right. Um, this is just a lovely thing. Um, Mary is um, there's, there's all kinds of rich uh, theological typology where we see hints and whispers in the old Testament. And we see that Mary is the fulfillment, the full flowering of these theological um, hints and whispers and types and shadows in the old Testament. We want to go through a couple of those. First of all, Mary is the new Eve. Um, we're in the, the first Eve, there is death and disobedience. With Mary, um, there is instead fruitfulness and faithfulness, where Eve said, did God really say? Mary says, be unto me according to thy word. Um, even more explicit, explicitly, G Gabriel's announcement to Mary in Luke chapter 1 reverses the serpent's questioning of Eve so no longer do sin and death reign through Adam and Eve's choice. Rather, God brings life to the world through the opening of Mary's yes, that is, through her untouched, sinless womb. Um, Mary is the last Old Testament matriarch. There's this great tradition of barrenness to fruitfulness in the Old Testament, whether it's mm. Sarah or Tamar or Anna. If you look at Anna's song, um, of, of thanksgiving to God that she spontaneously sings. It's sort of a proto-magnificat. Mary almost seems to echo it in her song of thanksgiving that, see, that she sings, and Naomi as well. Um, Mary also is the last remnant of Israel. We get this great theology of remnant, both um, Elijah in the desert, uh, when he assumes, when he's escaping uh, Ahab and Jezebel, and he, he prays, prays to God, is there even yet one faithful? And God says, um, behold, I have preserved, what does he say, 7,000 who are yet faithful in Israel. Um, we also get this in Isaiah, this theology of a remnant. And yet, um, as, uh, as the tribes are whittled down, the northern tribes are gone. Um, and then Judah and Benjamin are pulled into Babylon and then Persia. Um, we get at the end of uh, at the end of the Old Testament, we get um, in Malachi, we get the promise that there will be someone who will come who will have healing risen in his wings. Mm. Uh, and, and, and we get then this young girl with a secret and the vision from an angel, right? So um, all of the promises to Abraham have been whittled down to this last remnant, Mary. I love it. It's like, it's like Star Wars to me. I always think of this this way. Like when the rebellion has been whittled down, right, to uh, Princess Leia giving a disc to uh, R2-D2. I, I think of Mary as, as this, like she has this promise. And yet this I, promise I think of R2-D2 as well when I think of Mary. Yes, I, 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 I know this is, I've probably lost everyone at this point. So let me, let me, <laughs> let me kind of wrap up on my thoughts. Um, Mary also is, um, whereas in the Old Testament, we have the Ark of the Covenant. Um, uh, and the covenant has the, the signs. It has, um, it has the, uh, the, the uh, um, forgive me, the, um, the, the, the laws, the tablets. It has the stone tablets and it has um, a jar of manna. Um, but that's a prefiguring of, um, of, of God's true presence, which we have in the incarnate word, right? The, the word that spoke all things into being in Genesis is actually present in Mary's womb uh, through the annunciation, through the incarnation. Um, Mary is the bearer of that, the true presence of God among men. And so in that way, she is the, whereas the Ark of the Covenant prefigures the, the presence of God amongst men, Mary actually does carry the true presence of God amongst men. Um, and uh, we, uh, I want to talk about 
uh, Roman Catholic dogmas, Roman Catholic Church has four Marian dogmas, um, uh, and 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 some of them we share, and then we, they begin to we would probably say, gentlemen, and then this is where I'll I'll pass the baton to you. They begin to veer off uh, the rails, and they become less ecumenical and more kind of um, spiky and sectarian. Um, the first is of divine motherhood. Um, that is, that she, she is the, um, the mother of our Lord, the Theotokos. And this is affirmed by the Council of Ephesus. All Christians everywhere, all Orthodox Christians affirm this. Right, gentlemen? Yes. Mm -hmm. All right, good. Um, the second uh, Marian dogma is of perpetual virginity. Um, this is uh, affirmed in the Lateran Council of 649. Um, there is Protestant ambiguity and disagreement here. Um, and it might, it might surprise a lot of our evangelical brethren um, but there wasn't in the first generations of the reformers. Um, everyone agreed upon this. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Wesley, all affirmed the, the perpetual virginity of Mary. I, gentlemen, I didn't know this until the last several years. Um, I grew up in just kind of squishy American evangelicalism, kind of mainstream Methodism, and I just assumed that was some weird Roman Catholic thing. So maybe this is something that we as Protestants need to kind of in fear and trembling pray and think about. Um, this, is, this was not a late and recent um, Roman innovation. Um, but then we get to recent, very recent Roman innovations. Christopher, I know you have like really interesting thoughts and opinions on this. Um, the Immaculate Conception, um, it, that's 1854. Christopher, what is the Immaculate Conception? Well, it's funny. I, I think uh, it's misunderstood. A lot yes. of people, I think many people think that this refers to um, Mary becoming pregnant by the the Spirit of the Lord coming upon her. But in but fact, it's not. <laughs> refers to the, says that that she was um, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, that her mother would have um, uh, conceived her. Uh, Miraculously. Right, right. Uh, so, and this is where I'm speaking ignorance, so I need to be super careful. Um, her mother's name is Saint Anna, correct? And I don't know the origins of that. That's a kind of just a fond myth. That's just a kind of a pious invention, right? I don't, uh, yeah, so I need to be careful. I don't, I don't, don't want to slander anyone. I don't, I don't know the origins of that. Ross, do you know the origins of that? I do not. It's interesting, but that's evidently seems to be at some point. But that's one, invention. one that, that, um, only Roman Catholics would, right. would affirm, then, um, be, be, especially because like it was a 19th century, uh, like that's when it became official doctrine. Yes. Yeah. And, and then, then the fourth one, fourth one, yeah. And this, this fourth and final one, I gather, Christopher, is a matter unto salvation, correct? Boy, you're putting me on the spot. Sure. I, th I yeah. believe that you need to, you need to affirm this. this is, so anyhow, okay. um, this is the uh, Immaculate Concept, uh, I'm sorry, the Assumption. Christopher, what is the Assumption of Mary? Well, that, that she, in fact, uh, di didn't die and wasn't placed in a grave, but in fact was assumed um, bodily into heaven. Christopher, and, and do, you again, remember, this, yeah. do you remember Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Do you remember you know the religion? My, you, know my you, you know my memory's terrible. Do you remember the religion of the Assumption of Mary? No, I don't. She had an assumption that men could live <laughs> in brotherly love. <laughs> <laughs> So dumb, so dumb. But but anyhow, yeah, this is night. This dates back to 1950. the The only interesting thing about this is, um, all the other first century saints, um, there are relics and uh, they're they're venerable in ancient traditions of their burials. Of all the apostles, we know where they're all buried. 
it's interesting. We don't know where Mary was buried. She spent her last days in Ephesus with St. John, and then she just kind of disappears. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I want to let, I want to hear what Ross has to say. Yes. Um, I don't have much, but the one thing that I, in talking about these, these four Marian dogmas, it may be uh, easy for especially uh, an evangelical such as myself to cringe to hear uh, talk of uh, Theotokos or God-bearer. And, uh, you know, this has happened before. This is the backdrop of the Council of Ephesus in 431. And the reason that this matters is because what you think about Mary as God-bearer says a lot about what you think about who Christ is. Yes. Uh, yeah. And this, this was the issue. Uh, you know, when, I, when I studied church history as a Bible college student, I, I looked at this, some of this early church wrangling in the councils and was like, oh, you guys are arguing about, you know, one letter in a, in a word and stuff like that. I mean, what is up with this? It seems like you're just looking for stuff to fight about because they just didn't have the maturity at that time to understand the weightiness of, of these issues and what they're talking about. And the problem with balking at the idea of Mary being the mother of God, which that doctrine is not saying that God did not exist until Mary gave birth to Jesus. The importance of this doctrine is that Jesus is divine. He is yes. God in the flesh, and that happens in the womb of Mary. Um, and there was a lot of uh, wrangling in the early church uh, to try to understand how this can be. How can Jesus be fully God and be fully man? And that matters uh, because mm -hmm. uh, according to Athanasius, um, you, uh, uh, I wrote this down because I'm going to totally screw it up because yeah. my memory is also failing. Uh, <laughs> let me find it. Um, Ath uh, Athanasius, as far as he is concerned, if Jesus is not, divine we're not saved yes um, yeah because if god if jesus is anything less than divine he lacks the ability to save us so it's very important Amen. that jesus be divine uh but it's also very important that it be human um the full humanity of christ matters a lot and this is something that i think uh protestants that which he did not assume he could not yes save. exactly yeah. Exactly. Um, Speaking of assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very important that Jesus be fully human, that he has taken on human nature. So the full divinity of Christ matters. The full humanity of Christ matters. Uh, and if Jesus is fully divine and fully God, it happens in the womb of Mary. And therefore she is the mother of God. She is the God bearer. So uh, that's not, Pins dancing on the head of an uh, uh, angel, right. dancing on the head no. of a pin. That's that's consequential stuff that really, really matters. And this is something that uh, Protestants generally and evangelicals are guilty of just not considering deeply enough. Uh, for one reason, as you mentioned, Kurt, we're afraid of looking Catholic. Right. Can't do that. Mm. Oh, oh man, right. that would be such a terrible thing to be part of the great tradition of the church uh, <laughs> uh, in a little C Catholic sense. Um, so. Um, but also, you know, if you go to a typical evangelical church, you're only going to hear about Mary around Christmas time. Mm -hmm. Has there ever been a more faithful servant of God? Mm. I mean, what a big ask. Right. We're, we're talking about rumor and reputation and all of that being bound up in the fact that here is this, this unwed girl who is suddenly found to be with child. And uh, 
who is going to believe, oh yeah, an angel showed up and told me, and this is what's going on. Who's going to believe that? And she did it anyway. I mean, we we talk about the yes, Lord of the Syrophoenician woman. What about the yes, Mm. Lord? May it be as you have said of Mary. Um, May we ever have that kind of faith. Mm. Yes, well said. Well said. Gentlemen, do you, do you want to say anything about, um, after, after we've stressed to our listeners um, how important it is to, to be good um, Catholics, small-c Catholics in our um, kind of our Marian piety, um, do, do we want to kind of have a Protestant moment? Um, should we sure. talk about her sinlessness and her role as co-mediator? Let's do it. You first. <laughs> Well, well, I'll say this is, 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 um, we, we do strive to be small C Catholic. And, um, and, and what that means is that, the, is that we are connected in, whether we like it or not with the global church and the church throughout history. Um, and, and, you know, Ross talked about this early on in the podcast about, about how, um, you know, there's a faith that's passed on to us. And, and of course we learn from them right. and, and we are formed by them and, and, uh, and uh, so, uh, do- doctrines that are that are ancient um, and and that are passed down to us, uh, there are some of those things that we accept, and there's some that that we don't. So Ross talked about uh, maybe a perception by some that um, like the first century church was really good, and then it, right. it kind of fell in, into disarray, and then like the the reformers solved that. Um, and, and how inaccurate that was. Um, and, and the way that, that our small C Catholic tradition, the Anglican tradition, um, deals with this is, is we don't have um, communion with the Bishop of Rome. Um, and most of that is, is because um, kind of uh, there was uh, kind of medieval superstitions that crept into the church um, that, that needed to be correct, corrected in the Middle Age or in, in the Reformation. But that 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 the bulk of what we had inherited was a in fact a treasure, and, mm-hmm. and that we learn by reading um, through the fathers, and that doesn't mean that every father is correct, right? That that um, there there may be fathers that that deviate from orthodoxy here or there. So um, so it's 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 not so simple as to say, well, a church father taught this, therefore this is my piety, this is this is my doctrine. But it's also not so simple to say. Um, Oh well, um, this these doctrines were only made official in in the Roman Catholic Church in the 19th and 20th centuries. Therefore, they are rejected. Because I'm sure if, if we had a represent, representative of, of the Roman Catholic Church, they would say, "Oh, but we see these pieties here and here and here." Mm-hmm. Um, but what we would argue is 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 that um, just because we may see them here or here, um, they still were kind of late innovations that weren't necessarily universal, yeah. and certainly were not made universal until um, the power of the Pope made them universal in the 19th. 20th centuries so that's really kind of what i want to say is is that um it, it like there isn't a hard and fast rule to, to where we can just point to one uh, representative person in in a century uh, you know oh well 12 centuries ago this one guy wrote therefore i believe right. um, but we kind of look at the at, at the, the the history of the church and the history of, of that teaching well i would say those the last two marian dogmas um are are, are sad obstructions to unity um, because they're made after, after the schism, after the Reformation. Um, and I have this like grand um, 
Panglossian idea that like we'll all have a have a grand council at some point in my lifetime and we'll all get to be Western Catholics again. But like stuff like um, the, the 1950 um, making the the uh, the assumption of Mary um, a matter unto salvation like that that's an obstacle to unity and I'm uh, that that saddens me. Um, I guess I would say uh, her role as co-mediator, which was a a strong part of uh, John Paul II's piety. It's interesting. It was very important to him. That's unfortunate to me. Um, I, uh, I, I, th I think that um, we can let Mary um, show forth in her splendor without making her a mediator. Um, that, that strikes me as, as kind of odd, leaning on her, asking her to do that. Um, and then the other thing I would say that the sinlessness, um, that's, that's a, a late innovation as well. And I, I, I don't want to speak in ignorance. I don't know much about where that came from, uh, that those origins are murky as well. Um, so those things are sad things to me, sad innovations, Roman innovations. They're, they're sad to me because they're obstacles of unity. And oftentimes they obscure a Christ-centered, cross-focused faith. Um, and, and I don't mean to get into stereotypes, but there is a certain kind of um, Roman Catholic faith uh, that exists in certain pockets of Christendom that is more Mary-centric than Christ-centric. And it's true. It's just true. I know we're going to get Catholic hate mail because <laughs> of this, but it is just true. Um, we know this. So, um, and we all need to keep our own houses clean. So I'm not going to say anything more about that or, or rip Roman Catholics about that. I, I know um, if they have that one problem, we Anglicans have 57 problems. So it's, it's, it's okay. But that's all, that's all I would, I would say about that. Um, gentlemen, any, any, any other kind of Protestant observations on Mary? I really don't have anything to add. Uh, I would agree that you know, it's unfortunate to have this, this unnecessary obstacle to unity as a result of making too much of Mary, which is an amazing thing to say. Right. How do you make too much of this, <laughs> this wonderful witness of faith? <laughs> but when you try to say that she is doing things that I don't think that she is properly equipped to do, um, that, that appear, and it, it, this may be my ignorance, this may be a misunderstanding, but it sure looks to me like uh, some of the Catholic dogma is attempting to assign to her uh, roles and responsibilities that belong to to Christ and to Christ alone. So mm. um, that that said, it's not something I want to dwell on. Uh, I want to honor her because she is amazing. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so I, you know, humbly what we would say I think is that um, uh, that while Catholics probably have too high of a view of Mary, um, it is certainly true that Protestants have far too low. Yes, I would absolutely of Mary. agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to close the segment just by um, remarking on how Kirk shared that we, uh, the Song of Mary, the Magnificat, um, is, is part of our daily liturgy in, in evening prayer. Um, and uh, I want to raise that because uh, uh, we are, are liturgical people and we believe um, that liturgy is, is formative, that ed we include that because that forms us. Her, yes, her response um, is 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 a is a way that we want to be formed as followers of Jesus, um, and and uh, one other thing that that um, I want to make that connection to is is the prayer of humble access and how that forms us also as Christians as as we come forward not trusting in our own merit but in 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 the God who is mercy, and so with that uh, let us turn to prayer. The Lord be with you. 
And with your spirit. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us the increase of faith, hope, and love. And that we may obtain what you have promised. Make us love what you command through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God, you have taken to yourself the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of your incarnate Son. Grant that we, who have been redeemed by his blood, may share with her the glory of your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. 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 Ross, thank you for uh, being a, a, a guest and a wonderful guest. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Ross. Thanks for having me, Chris Kirk. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Next week, Christopher. Next week. <laughs>